You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani. You might have heard people say that the biggest cultural difference between the two largest nations which make up the Low Countries today is that one, the Netherlands, is Protestant, while the other, Belgium, is Catholic. This perspective leads to all sorts of generalizations and oversimplifications, which we, as humans, can't help but repeat to one another as memes that masquerade as facts. Inherent within are ideas that being Calvinist Protestant, read Dutch, means that people from the Netherlands are austere, hardworking, frugal, and straightforward, while the Catholic Belgians are more frivolous, spending every other day praying to or celebrating one saint or another before they go out and drink beer that was brewed in an ancient monastery by pious and humble monks. The truth, of course, is far more complicated and, if you don't mind me saying, far more interesting than that. Despite a majority of the population being baptized Catholic, only about 6% of Belgians actively or regularly attend Sunday Mass. Although there is a renowned Protestant and so-called Bible Belt in the Netherlands, which spans from Zeeland to Overijssel, where some towns are so strictly Calvinist that they turn off ATMs on Sundays, a survey from 2019 suggests that 54% of the total Netherlands population identifies as having no religion. In fact, the faith which has the largest active following nationally at 20.1% of the population is actually Catholicism, and the most practiced religion in the capital city, Amsterdam, is Islam. Huh? Well, when it comes to religion in the Low Countries, the truth, as always is not a matter of clear-cut distinctions, but more a swampy mash of many different things. In this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to take a look at the growth and development of spirituality and religion in the Low Countries, from pagan tribalism to the rise and dominance of Christianity, the arrival and growth of Judaism and Islam, and their long-term impacts in the Low Countries, the whirlwind of the Reformation, and the institution of a Calvinist doctrine in the North and a continued Catholic tradition in the South. We will finish by having a quick look at the state of religiosity and spiritualism in the low countries today. So, say your prayers, folks, because if we are going to successfully tackle a topic as huge and potentially filled with controversy as this one, without offending, well, everybody... It is going to take an indomitably non-denominational miracle. This is not a small topic, 
and as such, this will be quite the hefty episode. But to ease us into it and help us along, let me now introduce Julian Smith to the microphone. Hello, Julian. Hello, Joe. Glad we're starting off the year with a nice, easy and simple topic. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Where should we start? I know. In the beginning... So as I was saying, in the beginning, or rather around the beginning of the first millennium of the common era, the Low Countries was a swampy marshland, which was inhabited by various Celtic tribes in its southern regions and Germanic tribes in the north. These people had a polytheistic religious outlook, meaning they worshipped many different gods, goddesses, and deities, many of these embedded as spirits within aspects of the natural world, like animals, trees, or the sea. In the Arden Forest, for example, people worshipped a wild boar-riding woman named Arduina, and in Helderland, evidence has been found of a cult of worship to a tree goddess called Vagda Vercustus, sometime in the 2nd century of the Common Era. We covered some of the ancient legends and traditions that grew out of this pagan era in our episode on myths and legends of the Low Countries. When the Roman Empire expanded northwards around the turn of the millennium and Roman culture began to interact, often violently, with German and Celtic groups, there was an intermingling of these cultures and their belief systems. Evidence of this has been found in the town of Elst in Helderland, where two Gallo-Roman-style temples to a god of the Batavian tribe known as Hercules Magusanus were built on a sacred location formerly used for open-air worship. When the Roman calendar was adopted by Germanic tribes, they applied the so-called Interpretatio Germanica and equated their native Germanic gods with those from the Roman pantheon which had similar attributes. The effects of this can still be seen today in the Dutch names of the days of the week. For example, Luna, the Roman goddess of the moon, was equated to Mani, the Germanic moon deity. So the Latin name for Monday, Dies Lunae, literally Luna's Day in Latin, in Dutch becomes Maandag, the Day of the Moon. It is believed that the Dutch word for Tuesday, Dinsdag, comes from the god Tyr, also known locally as Tingsus, the German god of the People's Assembly. Inscriptions found at Hadrian's Wall equate Tingsus with Mars, the Roman god of war. So Tuesday in Latin, Dies Martis, Mars Day, becomes Dinsdag, Tingsus Day. Wednesday in Latin is Dies Mercuri, Mercury's Day. In Dutch, it became Woensdag, Wodan's Day, named after Wodan or Odin, one of the most important gods in Norse mythology. Jupiter, the Roman god of the sky, was interpreted to be the same as Donar, the German god of thunder. So Thursday, Dies Hovis, Jupiter's Day, in Dutch becomes Donderdag, Donar's Day. Friday, known in Latin as Dies Feneris or Venus Day, in Dutch is Freidag. The Germanic goddess of fertility, Freya, thus clearly corresponded to the Roman goddess Venus. Dies Saturni, Saturn's Day or Saturday, was simply translated to Zaterdag, as was Dies Solis, the day of the sun, to Zondag, Sunday.
Some of the most intriguing archaeological finds related to ancient pagan deities in the Low Countries are two temples dedicated to a goddess known as Nehalenia, which were found on the island of Valcheren in the modern Dutch province of Zeeland. Very little is known about Nehalenia, with the name not appearing at all in ancient writing. Scholars to this day are unsure whether she is of Germanic or Celtic origin, and she seems to have disappeared completely from the cultural consciousness before her rediscovery in the 17th century. Towards the end of 1646, huge storms in the North Sea pounded the coast of Zeeland, causing a large section of sand dunes near the town of Domburg to be washed away. In the wake of this devastation, on the 6th of January 1647, around 30 altars covered in carvings and inscriptions were discovered on the beach, having been brought to light by the fury of the storm. Less than two weeks later, an Amsterdam bookseller by the name of Jan van Hilton wrote of this discovery in a letter. Quote, My friend, I cannot refrain from telling you that there has recently been found here a monument of great antiquity. About a fortnight ago, some great stones of white limestone appeared on the beach near the sea. They were excavated last week. One, a great square stone is an altar three feet high and two and a half feet wide. On the lower front are carved in big Roman characters the words Deo Neptuno Octavius Amius. Some stones are carved on the upper part. They have a concave niche in which a goddess is sitting with a basket of apple-like fruit. On another stone, a goddess stands upright, larger than the first. On another stone, we find the words Dea Nehalenia Sumeronius Premanus. Some coins have been found in the sand around the site, having on one side the heads of the Roman emperors. On one of them is a castle, which is the coat of arms of Domburg. End quote. These stones were preserved in a church at Domburg, but were unfortunately destroyed in 1848, when lightning struck the building and collapsed the roof and the tower. Luckily, however, drawings of them still remain, so we can still see what they looked like. In the 1970s, a fisherman who was working in the Oosterschelde near the town of Kolinsplatt happened to discover four large stone fragments in his fishing nets. Further investigation and excavation by archaeologists revealed more than a hundred altars to Nehalenia under the water there. It is presumed that the temple was built on land which was inundated sometime in the 3rd century of the Common Era, dooming it and its testament to Nehalenia to a watery existence for the next 17 centuries. Nehalenia is commonly depicted with a canine companion, also with bowls of fruit, like mentioned in the quote earlier, and with ships or steering oars. As such, it is believed that she was a goddess of fertility, and most importantly, of seafaring. Inscriptions on the stone show that travellers who had successfully completed the often dangerous passage on the North Sea between the British Isles and the Low Countries would pay homage and give thanks to Nehalenia, with one reading, quote, To the goddess Nehalenia, on account of goods duly kept safe, Marcus Secundinius Silvanus, trader in pottery with Britain, fulfilled his vow willingly and deservedly, end quote. At the site of the Domberg Temple, Tree stumps were found, which suggests that although this was a Roman-style temple with Latin engravings, it was also probably built on the site of a previous sacred grove area, which was dedicated to her. This intermingling of cultures and beliefs, 
as well as the rededication of ancient sites of worship for new purposes, would only accelerate with the arrival of Christianity. The Germanic and Celtic traditions that predated Christianity by thousands of years would eventually be overcome by it in a process that would take centuries to complete. Missionaries set forth to convert tribes and groups of people who all had their own particular pagan takes on life. There was an extended and persistent push by abbeys and churches in already Christianized lands, like in Britain and the Frankish realm south of the Rhine, to facilitate the spreading of the word of Christ. Anglo-Saxon and Frankish preachers entreated the pagan peoples of the northern low countries to be baptized, endeavored to create monasteries, build churches and get more followers, as well as had pagan sites and shrines demolished whenever they could. Eligius, known in Flanders as Eloy, was one such Frankish cleric who was given the task of converting the peoples who resided in large parts of today's Flanders in the first half of the 7th century. Many of these missionaries would later be canonized as saints and have hagiographies written about them, and this was the case for Eligius, whose mate and contemporary, Dardo, the Bishop of Rouen, completed his biography after he had died. It is always worth taking these accounts with big chunks of North Sea salt, but there's some juicy stuff in there which shines a light on how relations between Christians and non-Christians were faring at the time. Quote, with the care of a solicitous pastor, he cast his eyes over the towns or municipia committed to him and their surroundings. But in Flanders and Antwerp, Frisians and Suevi and other barbarians coming from the seacoasts or distant lands not yet broken by the plough, received him with hostile spirits and averse minds. Yet a little later, after he gradually began to insinuate the word of God among them by the grace of Christ, the greater part made truce and the barbarian people left their idols and converted, becoming subject to the true God and Christ. Thus, like a light shining from heaven, or the rays of the sun breaking through, he illuminated every barbarian land. Beyond this, he laboured much in Flanders. He joined the struggle at Antwerp, where he converted many erroneous Zuevi with apostolic authority. Protected by the shield of Christ, he destroyed many fanes. Uh, Fane, by the way, is a temple or a shrine. Wherever he found any sort of idolatry, he destroyed it at the foundation. And all the while, he kept to the sober discipline of religious virtue, frequently assailed and often even provoked by contumely, meaning insulting language or treatment, by an ingrate and perfidious people. He was at no point moved from his original teaching, but ever more gentle, patient, humble, and kindly himself. He prayed the Lord for them. End quote. Look, while we're here, hearing about how he was smashing shrines and getting insulted for it, we may as well check out some of the gentle, patient, and humble words he was supposedly speaking. Quote, I denounce and contest that you shall observe no sacrilegious pagan customs. For no cause or infirmity should you consult magicians, diviners, sorcerers, or incantators. Do not observe auguries, meaning omens. No influence attaches to the first work of the day or the phase of the moon. Do not make vetulas, 
which, by the way, are a type of corn dolly, which will be made at the end of the harvest for the corn spirit to be housed in. Little deer or ioticos, or set tables for the house elf at night, or exchange New Year's gifts, or supply superfluous drinks. No Christian performs solestitia, solstice rites, or dancing, or leaping, or diabolical chants. No Christian should presume to invoke the name of a demon, not Neptune, or Orcus, or Diana, or Minerva, or Geniscus. No one should observe Jove's day in idleness. No Christian should make or render any devotion to the gods of the Trivium, where three roads meet, to the fanes, or the rocks, or springs, or groves, or corners. None should presume to hang any phylacteries, which are amulets believed to have magic powers, from the neck of man nor beast. None should presume to make lustrations or incantations with herbs or to pass cattle through a hollow tree or ditch. No woman should presume to hang amber from her neck or call upon Minerva or other ill-starred beings in their weaving or dying. None should call the sun or moon lord or swear by them. No one should tell fate or fortune or horoscopes by them as those who do believe that a person must be what he was born to be. End quote. These ancient traditions didn't merely disappear with the arrival of Christian missionaries and Christian soldiers, but rather took constant berating and preaching against them by men like Eligius. Some peoples converted as a political or practical decision, while some integrated elements of the new religion with elements of their own ancient pagan processes. As we saw with the days of the week, we still have echoes of this today. Each year, people around the world still create a tree shrine in their house to mark the return of the sun after the winter solstice. It's just been rebranded as a Christmas tree, and we do it to commemorate the birth of Jesus. No doubt, there were many different ways that different people came about their conversion. I would honestly not be surprised if people converted just so that they would stop being lambasted by righteous missionaries. People would have found all kinds of reasons to become Christian and to integrate a new faith system into their own lives and those of their kin. Other peoples flat out refused baptism, persistently withstanding the overtures of Christ's messengers. The Frisians were a large group who obstinately defied Christianity. Frisian territory covered a large chunk of today's Netherlands, and some claims have had it spanning from around where Bruges is in Belgium up to the Atlantic coast until the river Weser, which runs through Bremen in Germany. This area was known as Magna Frisia, and by the turn of the 7th into the 8th century, it was renowned for its mercantile bounty, being a crossroads between all directions. From the 680s, it was ruled by a guy called Radbod, which is a great name, who would remain in power until his death in 719. This was a very important period for the Christianization of this part of northwestern Europe. The Franks had become a Christian people, which added a whole weight of vigorous and pointy swords to the efforts of the preaching missionaries. The Franks were getting close to the peaks of their power and were led in these years by Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles Martel. He was a man who also vigorously pursued the subjugation and conversion of surrounding peoples, and he set his sights on the Frisians. So for decades across the 7th and 8th centuries, 
there was an on-again, off-again series of Frankish-Frisian wars as the two regional powers vied for control of the Rhine Delta region. Under Frankish protection, Christianity managed to gain a hold as far as Utrecht and Dorstad, near the mouth of the Rhine. But sometime around 690, the Frisians under Radbod seized these places back, inciting another group of missionaries to be sent from the British Isles. This included a man named Willibrod, who would become a major figure in this fascinating time of change. The Christian Franks retook Utrecht just before the turn of the century, and in 695, Pope Sergius I appointed Willibrod as Bishop of the Frisians, though history remembers him as the first Bishop of Utrecht. The church that had stood in Utrecht prior to the recent Frisian occupation had been destroyed during it. Willibrod decided to build a new cathedral dedicated to St. Martin. This church would also later be destroyed by Vikings in the 9th century, but is the predecessor to the famous St. Martin's Cathedral, now known as the Dom, that stands guard over Utrecht today. Other missionaries went to work directly with the pagans during this time, with one famous example being Wolfram, a Frankish missionary who had given up his position as Bishop of Sens to become a missionary to the Frisians. He had direct contact with the Frisian king Radbod, and he is said to have converted his son to Christianity. There are a few hagiographical miracles accredited to Wolfram's efforts to convert Radbod, one being that the Frisians were conducting religious human sacrifice, and Wolfram, begging them to stop, accepted Radbod's gamble that if a man being hung somehow survived, Wolfram and the church could have his soul. Apparently, the rope being used to hang the man snapped, and Wolfram got his convert. But the story probably most representative of this spiritual changing of the guard in the Low Countries is when Radbod himself came oh so close to allowing himself to be baptised. Standing on the precipice of the right, he is said to have inquired at the last minute whether his ancestors were in heaven or hell. Wolfram replied that, as idolaters, they were consigned to hell. Wolfram's honest answer to this question lost him the chance of sealing the deal because Radbod then decided that he would rather spend an eternity in hell with his ancestors than be in heaven without them. Radbod soon had other things on his mind anyway. The Frankish king died in 714, which sparked a civil war, and two years later, Radbod took advantage of the turmoil to seize the Rhine River Delta region and consolidate control as far as the lands on its southern reaches around Nijmegen. During this period, the missionary efforts in Friesland were on the back foot. The continual wars between Franks and Frisians made things difficult, but still more missionaries arrived in attempts to convert the Frisians. The most influential of these was another Anglo-Saxon cleric called Boniface, who arrived in Utrecht right as Radbod was in military mode. The Frisian king wouldn't even give him a chance to make his case for Christ. First time around, he was forced back to England, defeated. However, within a few years, Radbod had also died, and Boniface took his chance, returning to the Low Countries and teaming up with the elder Willibrod. The two of them set about what they saw as their God-given task to deliver Friesland, the last pagan outpost, to Jesus. Over the next 20 years, Willibrod and Boniface had a lot of success in making the position of the Frisian bishopric more and more powerful. They oversaw the creation of church buildings and the destruction of pagan relics and sites. 
When Charles Martel became the effective ruler of the Franks in 718, he was pretty serious about the whole Christianizing heathen projects. He swept into Friesland in the 730s, defeated the Frisians in battle, and wiped out a bunch of religious sites and shrines. It seemed that the persistent pagan problems of Friesland had been countered. Not long after this short and decisive war, though, the very old Willy Broad became the very dead Willy Broad, leaving the strong diocese that he had built as a tempting piece of political real estate. Different powerful bishops from other dioceses began vying for control, trying to take the Frisian Sea into their own. This went on for over a decade, and then in the 750s, the now in his 80s Boniface felt compelled to head back to Utrecht and make a statement for the independence of the diocese and to smash a few more pagan shrines that had popped up. On his return, he was camped at Dockham on a midsummer's day when a band of thieves surrounded his entourage. Such was Boniface's faith in his cause that he commanded all of his party to not resist any action taken by the villains. He reportedly cried, Cease fighting! Lay down your arms, for we are told in scripture not to render evil for evil, but to overcome evil by good. As such, he and 52 others steadfastly did not resist as they were cut to pieces and slain. Having supervised the rockiest years of the tumultuous transition from pagan beliefs to Christianity, St. Willibrod, St. Wolfram and St. Boniface sit high on the list of revered saints of the Low Countries. By the 12th century, Roman Catholic Christianity held a good-as-monopoly over the religious framework of all Western European societies. The church became as powerful an institution as the biggest state landholders, with the Pope theoretically commanding the attention of any and every Christian king and prince. Fueled by widespread crusading fervor, the church grew in power and day-to-day integration in people's lives all across Europe. It was an administrative power structure that operated on the temporal realm, wielding and consolidating its physical power through the acquisition of property. Wealthy Christians, worried about what their eternal afterlife may look like, often donated vast sums of wealth and real estate to the church in their wills. This provided a near-constant stream of revenue and funded the growth of church administration through the construction of abbeys, convents, monasteries, and other such bodies of influence that sprung up all over the place. But of course, the very existence of the church and the root of its power is based on interpretation and belief, and not just how much stuff you own. There were big theological issues that had to be ironed out, and as church hegemony solidified, it had to often undergo different system upgrades to make sure that everybody was reading from the same hymn page. Miracles were stories that could communicate the general ethic of the church and what they were trying to drill into the wider public, and from the 13th century onwards, a bunch of them began to occur in the Low Countries as much as anywhere else. The story of Christina Mirabilis, aka Christina the Astonishing, whose life spanned from the 12th into the 13th century, is one such early example. Christina was an ordinary woman from Brustum in today's Belgium. She was orphaned as a teenager and at 20 suffered a seizure that was so extreme that everybody thought she had died. In fact, they were so convinced she was dead 
that a funeral was held for her in her local church. According to the church, it was during the funeral mass that Christina's body began to levitate up to the rafters, and she, apparently recovered from death, began to scream that she had been to purgatory, seen heaven, and borne witness to the flames of hell, and she was levitating up to the ceiling because she could not bear the smell of sin that washed over the assembled congregation. I mean, they were just trying to give her a funeral, and now she was telling them that they stank. As it were, though, the astonishing part of Christina's life was not over. She lived well into old age, continuing to do things like levitate or climb trees to get away from the smell of sin that sat on everybody. Her life served as a constant reminder of the inherent sinfulness of every person, reinforcing the role of the church as the only avenue towards salvation. As a uh, random aside, some 750 years after the life of this Flemish peasant girl, Australian singer-songwriter Nick Cave wrote a song about her called Christina the Astonishing, which retells the story of her life. Another example of the church needing to publicize its theology to a wider public is how it defined and publicized the idea of transubstantiation, which is the process by which the bread and wine used in mass become the literal body and blood of Christ. This, you might be surprised to learn, was a much debated and differently interpreted topic across Christendom at the same time as Christina the Astonishing's astonishing life was unfolding. So in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council nailed it down and confirmed that transubstantiation was a legit thing, now a confirmed rigidig part of church doctrine. Whatever anybody had felt about it until now did not matter. Everybody now had to fall in line with it. Now, it may just be a coincidence, or it may be part of some kind of savvy publicity campaign, but from that point on, there was a noticeable increase in Eucharistic miracles in the Low Countries as much as anywhere. A miracle was such a boon for any place lucky enough to host one as it made the site an instant pilgrimage location, which was essentially the same as somewhere being a famous tourist site today. It brought travellers and revenue into town and people quickly took to making and selling souvenirs to the steady stream of pilgrims traipsing into town. From the 12th century onwards, there was a fairly steady occurrence of Eucharistic miracles in the Low Countries. Some of these miracles were a bit more miraculous than others. If a host or the piece of bread used for the sacrament merely survived a fire or flood, then it could be proclaimed a miracle. So a piece of nicely cooked toast left behind after a house fire, yeah, that, that's miraculous. Famous miracles or relics from the Low Countries that bear a quick mentioning include the 1345 Eucharistic miracle of Amsterdam, which put the town on the map and led to a tripling of its population, the relic of the Holy Blood in Bruges, which is a glass container with a scrap of blood-specked cloth in it, which is claimed to be that of Jesus himself, washed from his body by Joseph of Arimathea and brought to Flanders as spoils from one of the Crusades, and the Brussels Eucharistic miracle of 1370. The last of these actually shows how the establishment of a miracle could also very much have a dark side in the theological landscape of the Low Countries, because 
as dominant as Christianity had become, there were people within the wider social body who were inherently not Christian. Miracles could be dangerous, especially when it came to the treatment of Jews. Although speculative, due to the lack of written evidence, it is likely that Jewish people have been part of the social and cultural fabric of the Low Countries since the turn of the millennium, when the first networks between the Roman and Germanic worlds were established. The oldest physical evidence of Jewish habitation in the Low Countries is a gravestone found in Tinen, Brabant, from 1255, with the name of a young girl on it, Rebecca. So there was clearly a Jewish community in the area as late as them. Just how included Jews were in late medieval societies is unclear, though. So, too, is the extent of the liberty they had to practice the tenets of their faith. Given the strong presence of Jewish communities later on, clearly they were able to maintain their traditions easily enough to continue passing them down from generation to generation. But around the time that miracles began to occur more and more frequently in the 12th and 13th centuries, a few things happened that further isolated Jews from the rest of society. One was the practice of usury, loaning money at interest. This was forbidden by the Pope in 1179. Borrowing money, however, was an essential part of political manoeuvring, so Jews, not beholden to the Pope's command, came to play an important role as moneylenders, therefore also coming to hold a lot of Christian debt. This is a precarious position to hold, generally speaking. Another factor that made life more difficult for Jews was the Black Plague. The first wave of plague kicked off in 1348 and quickly spread across Europe, wreaking such tragedy on the European continent that people desperately sought and found all kinds of answers for why and how it happened. Easily the most devastating of these was the idea that Jews had caused the plague, which was a fairly pervasive one in the Low Countries and led to all kinds of pogroms and devastation for the Jewish community. On one occasion in Brussels in 1370, the occurrence of a Christian miracle came to collide heavily with the anti-Semitism that was increasing in the wake of the social trauma that the plague had caused. On Good Friday of 1370, a group of 13 Jews purportedly stole the Eucharistic bread and slashed at it with knives, stabbing it ferociously. To their shock, that is when the miracle occurred. The bread began to bleed. Rattled by this and unsure what to do, they found a Catholic merchant whom they entrusted with it and went into hiding. The merchant went and told the authorities about it, and the desecrators were promptly sentenced to death. Tragically, the thirst for vengeance after this sacrilege, though, was so strong that all of the Jews of Brussels and Lofen were rounded up and burned alive. We'll be back after this break. A characteristic of the Low Countries in the late Middle Ages was its above-average overall literacy. In Deventer, in the latter half of the 14th century, contemporary with the pogroms against the Jews, 
a Christian man named Gert Grote rose to prominence. He had been born into a wealthy, educated family, but in 1374, he had a revelation of humility and turned his home into a shelter for women. He would go on to found the Brethren of the Common Life community at a monastery in Zwolle, starting a lay religious movement known as Modern Devotion. By this time, the clergy were well established as elite members of society, and Hrota reacted against this by trying to bring the key tenets of Christianity back to the people. It was absolutely a reform movement, highlighting individual piety, humility, obedience, and minimalism. It also led to the creation of schools, as young men and women were taught to read and write so that they could copy texts and scriptures that could then be sold so as to fund the whole operation. Krota basically set up his own new style of monastery that did not demand vows, but instead focused on the creation of a community that was dedicated to a lifestyle of doing charitable work, taking care of the sick, reading and studying the Bible and other religious texts, copying books and setting up schools to educate the masses. Within a century of Krota's turning his house into a shelter, there were others set up around the region, from Amersfoort to Gouda to Duisburg to Munster. The school set up through the Brethren of the Common Life reached far and wide. Erasmus attended one. He hated it, but he attended one. As did Martin Luther and Thomas van Kampen, whose text outlining the principles of modern devotion, called The Imitation of Christ, is today thought to be the second most widely read tract on Christianity after the Bible. The argument has been made that the prominence of the Common Life Order in the Low Countries had a direct impact on its rapid modernization over the 16th and 17th centuries, through the copying of books and eventual printing after the invention of the press, by creating educational institutions and promoting learning for all, the brethren of the common life helped raise the level of literacy in the low countries to a much higher level than other contemporary and nearby societies. In the Netherlands in 1500, the number of book editions created per capita was 25% higher than in Germany, three times higher than France, around eight times higher than Spain and Portugal, and ten times higher than England. In addition to this, the presence of a Brethren of the Common Life House also played a strong role in city growth in the period between 1400 and 1560. Those cities with a Brethren House grew on average 35% more than those without. This suggests that the strong presence of the Brethren of the Common Life also helped fuel economic growth within the Low Countries in this time period. But, perhaps most pertinently, the success of the common life meant that after the printing press was invented in the 1430s, and when the Reformation kicked off in 1517, and all different kinds of theological interpretations started flying about, the Low Countries hosted societies that were literate enough to read all the propaganda and become fully-fledged active participants in the religious turmoil that was about to be unleashed. The Reformation is often linked most closely with Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. However, Luther was only one of a score of people who had long been seeking institutional change in how the church operated and went about implementing Christ's teaching. 
Gert Grote had been such a man. Before and during Luther's time, many churchmen and scholars were debating key issues of faith, such as the selling of indulgences and the extent to which the Eucharist really was the body of Christ, what the purpose and meaning of baptism was, the matter of predestination, which is the idea that every human soul was predestined for heaven or hell. Many were calling for reform within the church in dealing with these questions, including a guy called John Calvin. So, although we speak of the Netherlands becoming a Calvinist nation, it is more accurate to say that it became reformist, drawing theology from reformers like Calvin. Other reform movements also sprung up and found sustenance in the Low Countries, the most stark example being Anabaptism. Anabaptism narrowed on the idea that a proper Christian must personally choose their faith in Christ as an adult. Conventional Christian tradition was to baptize people as infants, which the Anabaptist movement countered. In their early days, therefore, they were re-baptizing people as adults, or, as their disparagers saw it, heretically baptizing people again. This is where the term Anabaptist comes from, Anna meaning again in Latin. So Anabaptism means baptism again. The practice of adult baptism drew scorn from all angles, Catholics, Lutherans, and other reformists. By the start of the 1530s, the Anabaptist movement had grown tentacles into the Low Countries, largely through the work of a man named Melchior Hoffman, who spent a couple of years traipsing around the region preaching re-baptism. He tried to institute a kingdom of God in Strasbourg before being imprisoned, where he remained until his death. A few influential characters from the Low Countries became disciples of his teachings, including Menno Simons, from whom the later Mennonites would originate, Jan Bogelson, a tailor from Leiden, and, most prominently at this stage, a baker from Harlem called Jan Matthijs. With Hoffman taken off the scene, Matthijs became a major leader of the general movement. Two brothers, called Ober and Dirk Phillips, who were followers of Matthijs, but who would also become big players in the direction Anabaptism would take following these events, gave witness to what was being sold to people who were flocking to join the cause. Quote, They proposed and proclaimed to us peace and patience. They also comforted us and said we need have no fear as we had long had because of the great tyranny, since no Christian blood would be shed on earth. But in short time, God would rid the earth of all shedders of blood and all tyrants and the godless. They told us that no more blood would be shed on earth. End quote. We can see from this quote that during these tumultuous times, people were looking for answers to their woes. Jan Matthijs set his eyes upon a German city called Münster, where other reformist ideals like Lutheranism had already successfully taken hold and he decided that this would be the New Jerusalem. In early 1534, this baker from Harlem, Matthijs, and his followers incited an insurrection in Münster, replacing the town council with Anabaptist-minded citizens. He convinced them all that God spoke directly with him, and he instituted a theocracy that was brutally enforced by his followers, such as Jan Bokelzone, who would later be known as Jan van Leiden, John of Leiden. Münster was put to siege by its Catholic prince bishop, and during this siege, this baker from Harlem, Jan Matthijs, was told by God to take just a dozen men and charge the besieging army. He promptly did this and was promptly hacked to pieces, his head displayed on a spike before the city walls 
and his genitals nailed to the city gate. Good plan, God. With this weird occurrence, John of Leiden then suddenly found that God was talking to him now, so took over the leadership of the eternal kingdom of heaven in Munster and had himself crowned as king. He instituted compulsory polygamy in his new Jerusalem, which was now reaching starvation after half a year under siege. And he went ahead and forced 16 women to marry him. A month later, the siege in Munster broke through, leaving John of Leiden and his followers to face brutal torture and public execution. The violent Anabaptist movement was not isolated to Munster, however. Cities like Amsterdam, Harlem and Leiden were like petri dishes for cultivating radically reformist ideas like Anabaptism. One historian named Peter Brock has said that at this time the sect of Anabaptism, quote, very soon became numerically the strongest branch of the Protestant Reformation and remained so until it was displaced by Calvinism three or four decades later, end quote. There were many poor people who were seeing a lot of establishment wealth and power not being shared with them, as well as literate, more middle-class artisans who were drawn to the individual empowerment of choosing Christ as an adult. Another historian, Gert Mack, observed that, quote, Later in the sentences passed on them by the courts, it is shoemakers, coopers, makers of cloth, glass, harnesses and brooms, bargees, bookbinders, carpenters, goldsmiths, tailors, weavers and locksmiths whom we encounter again and again and who supported this rebel movement, end quote. With word spreading about the monster insurrection and the establishment of the so-called thousand-year kingdom of Zion, Amsterdam Anabaptists answered the call, emboldened to do the same in their city. Pamphlets, brochures and other literature littered Amsterdam society. In May 1534, a small group of five Anabaptists in Amsterdam decided to take advantage of the Munster momentum and, brandishing swords, set to the streets of the west and lesser developed part of Amsterdam. They shouted and they cried, quote, The new city is given to the children of God. Repent ye, repent ye, and do penance. Woe, woe to all the godless. End quote. Shortly after this, on the same day, large groups of Anabaptist families began to gather together in the port of Amsterdam, where they boarded a ship and set sail into the Zuiderzee. They were heading to Munster to join the Kingdom of Zion, and were followed shortly by another group. That would turn out to be a terrible decision for everybody involved. Tensions continued to rise in the city. A month after this exodus, rumours began to filter in that a force of Anabaptists were descending upon Amsterdam from Friesland. The city militia began to prepare for an attack, and a few well-known Anabaptists were summarily beheaded or burned alive as a preventative warning. The attack from Friesland did not occur, but there was clearly a core group of radicals already in the city. One, a prophet known as Dirk, held a gathering of followers in a draper's house in February 1535. As the small group prayed, according to their later confessions, the house began to shake. After their biddance, the prophet Dirk announced to the others, quote, I have seen God on his throne face to face and have spoken to him. 
I was carried up to heaven and then sent down to hell, and I have seen all. End quote. Just like Christina the Astonishing, but where is Nick Cave's song about Dirk the Prophet? Anyway, Dirk then singled out one of his small congregation, pointed to him, and told him brutally, quote, Thou art condemned in all eternity. Thou art not worthy to be taken down to hell, and shalt therefore sink into the abyss below it. End quote. I don't know what this poor bloke had done, but to be told there was something worse than hell drew all kinds of penance from him, pleading to be forgiven. Dirk kindly did just that and told him, quote, The father has had pity and has accepted thee as a son. End quote. Oh, what a relief. The next night the group gathered again, and this time Dirk, after prayers, took off all his kit and threw his clothes into the fire standing completely naked before the rest. He told them to do the same, which they promptly obliged, having been told that their clothes would be a, quote, pleasing burnt offering for God, end quote. Well, God might have been pleased about this burnt offering, but Archie Yarns, the lady who actually owned the house, who had been asleep, was most certainly not, having been awoken by the clamour and the smell. She quickly ran up to her attic, thinking her house was on fire, but there she found 11 naked people standing around getting visions from God. Dirk quickly told her that she had to do the same, take off all her clothes, which she then did. Then, following Dirk's lead, the whole group set off out of the house, leaving the fire burning, and they ran around Amsterdam naked, screaming about the wrath of the Heavenly Father. To be fair, This would not be the last time that somebody got naked and ran around Amsterdam having had heavenly visions. Chances are that it probably happened to somebody yesterday. Chances are it's probably happening to somebody right now. But it was a far greater spectacle in the early 16th century than it would be today. The group was rounded up, but they refused to put on clothes. Over the next few weeks, and with confessions drawn out of them, The men were beheaded, the women were sewn up in sacks and thrown into the harbour to drown, and poor Achir Jans, the draper who had gotten caught up in it all, was hanged outside her house. Authorities would have been hoping that this was enough deterrent to prevent any more of this kind of shenanigans, but it would not be until May 1535 that things really escalated. On the 10th of that month, 40 Anabaptists made a concerted attempt to take over the city by force. They chose their moment carefully, as the city magistrates, the people who ran the town, they were all drunk at a feast being held by the city's crossbow militia. The Anabaptists stormed the town hall and occupied it, staving off a counter-attack led by one of the mayors who was killed in the process. It was not until early the next morning that the city militia managed to storm the building, killing 28 of the offenders, the last of them being a man who climbed to the top of the tower and just sat there abusing everybody until a gunner finally hit him and he fell to his death. The surviving Anabaptists were to be made an example to all. All 12 of them had their chests cut open in front of a public crowd. Their hearts were pulled from their bodies like something out of Indiana Jones, and then those hearts were thrown ignominiously back into their faces. Those who had died in the whole escapade had their bodies strung up 
and other influential Anabaptists in the city were sought out and likewise executed. Although Anabaptism would not disappear, over the next two decades there would still be occasional executions for heresy in Amsterdam, but after 1549 they would have no more impact on the social-political stability of the town. A large part of that is because of a guy called Menno Simons, who had become an Anabaptist in 1531. He had seen the uprisings in Munster and Amsterdam fail spectacularly, causing a lot of pain and a lot of death of Anabaptist followers. So he made the calculated decision that Anabaptist survival after these uprisings would depend on Anabaptists keeping their heads down, staying out of social and political debate, and focusing on the simple theology of their faith. Above all, Simmons promoted a pacifism that would come to define his followers, and which can be seen today in communities of Mennonites and Amish people who are the direct descendants of this early Anabaptism that briefly in the 1530s tried to set the world on fire. It was in the middle of this maelstrom of protest against the established church order, new theological ideas, and violent uprisings that a general revolt against Habsburg rule would break out across the Low Countries. In 1523, Habsburg Emperor Charles V, with the approval of the Pope, selected a man named Franz van der Holst to be Inquisitor General of the Low Countries. His job was to root out heresy and heretics wherever they may be found, and to crush these movements, which so threatened the basis of societal order. After Charles V abdicated his throne and split his empire into two parts, his son, known as Philip II, became King of Spain and overlord of the Low Countries. Philip II, like his father, was also a strident defender of Catholicism, and saw it as his mission to defeat Protestantism wherever it was found. He is probably most widely known in the English-speaking world for being the person who sent the Spanish Armada to England in 1588 in an ill-fated attempt to quickly remove the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I and replace her with a Catholic monarch. Just as we saw during the rise of Christianity when missionaries in the 7th and 8th centuries had made it their life's work to destroy previous sacred pagan sites and rebrand them in the name of the Pope, so too did Protestants begin to attack Roman Catholic churches and sacred objects in defiance of the Pope. In 1566, the so-called Beldenstorm, or iconoclastic fury, burst out in Flanders, during which mobs would break into the churches and smash statues, stained glass windows, symbols of saints and the Virgin Mary. This would spread throughout the Low Countries, culminating in an orgy of destruction in Antwerp. One eyewitness in Antwerp would say of it, Quote, All the churches, chapels, and houses of a religion were utterly defaced, and no kind of thing left whole within them, but broken and utterly destroyed, being done after such order and by so few folk that it is to be marvelled at. End quote. In response to this, Philip II sent a guy called Fernando Álvarez de Toledo, the Duke of Alba, to the Netherlands to become the new governor and oversee the re-establishment of order the Duke of Alba organised something called the Council of Troubles, which in Dutch is known as the Council of Blood, which should probably tell you something about its general character and how it was viewed by the wider society. On the 16th of February, 1568, 
the Holy Office in the Vatican approved a universal death sentence upon every one of the three million inhabitants of the Netherlands, men, women, and children, barring a few named exceptions. This was pretty drastic and has been called the largest death sentence ever issued. As you can imagine, the people of the Netherlands fiercely disagreed with this. In May of 1568, an exiled nobleman by the name of William, Prince of Orange, invaded the Netherlands with the support of his brothers and Protestant armies from France, and in so doing became the figurehead of what would become an 80-year struggle against Spanish rule in the Netherlands. William himself is fascinating in the way that his own personal beliefs reflect the dynamism of European Christianity during the centuries-long Reformation movement. He had been born into a Lutheran family in Germany and raised in those beliefs as a child. When his cousin, René of Chalon, died when William was 11, he left land and a title in France, which saw him become Prince of Orange. This was done on the condition that he would be given a Roman Catholic education, which saw him sent to Breda and later Brussels to be taught to be a good Catholic prince. Growing up at the imperial court, he became a favourite of Charles V, and thus had deep, close personal connections to the ruling dynasty. In 1559, William found himself sent to France as a hostage, let's not get into it, alongside the Duke of Alba. Whilst in France as a hostage, he did typical hostage things, like going on a hunting trip with French King Henry II, who proceeded to tell him all about secret plans that he had made with Spanish King Philip II. William was shocked and dismayed to hear that these plans included killing all the Protestants in France, the Netherlands, and the world. But... Being a good politician, William remained quiet about his misgivings and simply smiled and nodded. It is for this reason that he is known in Dutch as Willem de Zweicher, or William the Silent. So like I said, within William we see the complexities of the religious times here. Within him we have a Lutheran who was raised Catholic and was deeply opposed to persecution of people for their religious beliefs. What makes this even more interesting is how his great-grandson, also known as William of Orange, would later lead Protestant English armies into Ireland and become and remain to this day a symbol of religious division in Ireland. We're not going to go into the details of the 80 Years' War, but it was during this conflict that the northern half of the Low Countries formed into an independent, officially Protestant nation, and the southern half remained under the Catholic Spanish Habsburg rule. But the conviction held by William, among others, the people should be free to practice whatever religion they wanted, would be enshrined within one of the founding treaties of the Netherlands, known as the Union of Utrecht. This document would allow personal freedom of religion, thus becoming one of the first of its kind in the modern Western world. This had a big impact on Jewish communities in the Low Countries. Many Sephardim Jews, who had escaped persecution on the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal and Spain, in the 15th century, had settled in and around Brabant and Flanders by the 16th. When the Spanish army occupied the southern half of the Low Countries in the 1580s, thousands of Jews joined the thousands of Protestants who moved their lives north and became fundamental participants in the new Dutch Republic. 
Amsterdam in particular, just as Antwerp had been, became a symbolically important city for Jews, with scores of Ashkenazi refugees joining the Sephardim who had relocated there. By the end of the 17th century, Jews made up just under 5% of Amsterdam's population. In 1671, the Sephardic community was given land to build a synagogue, which still stands today. Interestingly, the social tolerance that made it possible for a Jewish community to thrive in Amsterdam also made fertile ground for ideas to emerge from within that same community that would pose a great threat to it. Baruch Spinoza was born to a family of Murano Jews, being descendants of Portuguese Jews who had been forced to convert to Catholicism a century prior, but who had taken up their ancestral religion upon arriving in the religiously tolerant Netherlands. Spinoza was raised in Amsterdam in a traditional Jewish manner, but he lived in a society that tolerated people of different religions. He was influenced by Mennonites and reformists and rationalist philosophers like René Descartes, who also lived in the Netherlands, by the way. After a lengthy struggle of faith, he renounced traditional Jewish practice. Spinoza would become one of the most renowned Enlightenment philosophers. His writings on how God and nature should be understood through philosophy and science rather than religious worship and adulation have seen him held up as an early advocate of atheism. But at the same time, his writings also saw him completely ostracized by the conventional Jewish community in Amsterdam. He was branded a heretic and excommunicated with the utmost severity. And if you are wondering how utmost this severity was, indulge me one moment. In late 2021, an Israeli scholar called Yitzhak Melamed, who is a Spinoza expert and a professor at John Hopkins University, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem submitted a request to do some filming at the Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam in a production about his studies of Spinoza. He got the following response. The Chachamim and Panasim of Kahal Kados Torah excommunicated Spinoza and his writings with the severest possible ban, a ban that remains in force and cannot be rescinded. I therefore deny your request and declare you persona non grata in the Portuguese synagogue complex. That's right. So severe was the banishment of Spinoza that a man of the same faith who studies his work some 350 years after his death was refused to even attend the synagogue which issued the original ban. An independent Dutch Republic emerged from the Eighty Years' War and it became officially Protestant. Catholicism was technically illegal. Due to the pragmatic policy of religious tolerance, however, Catholics, Anabaptists, Jews and Muslims were not persecuted. Catholics were permitted to continue practicing their beliefs as long as they did it discreetly enough to not draw attention to what they were doing. As such, they created so-called Schalkirchen or hidden churches, which look like regular Dutch houses from the outside, but like normal Catholic churches on the inside. Despite this, the papacy remained a viable enemy in the popular imagination. One example of this is a popular saying that emerged during the revolt against Spain, but which remained ingrained for a long time after. The saying, which today sounds pretty racist, but which shows how deep this Christian schism had become, is Liefer Turks dan Paps, 
better Turkish than Papist. Ugh. This warrants some explaining. From the 11th century on, having converted most of Europe to Christianity, the popes set their sight on the Muslim world and began sending crusaders to retake the Holy Land. The leader of the first crusade, Godfrey of Bouillon, came from the house of Flanders, and his brother Baldwin would, in 1100, become the first Christian king of Jerusalem. This conflict between Christianity and Islam was beefed up a notch when the Ottoman Turks captured the hugely important strategic city of Constantinople, leading to fears across Europe that the rest of Christendom would soon be overrun by Muslim armies. By the time of the Reformation, the Islamic Ottoman Empire had grown into a superpower, and one characteristic that they shared with people like William of Orange was the idea of religious tolerance. Also by this period, the mercantilism of the Low Countries had established good contacts with the East and relations had been established. There were Islamic traders and diplomats in the Low Countries from the 16th century, and good diplomatic terms emerged between those leading the new Dutch Republic and the Ottoman Sultanate. It was during this period that tulips, today one of the most common symbols of the Netherlands, were first introduced into the Low Countries from their natural habitat in the foothills of the Himalayas within the Ottoman Empire. As early as 1566, William the Silent sent ambassadors to the Sultan seeking aid in the growing conflict against Catholic forces. In a letter to a contemporary, he wrote about finding help from any corner, from anybody. Quote, Even if he were a Tatar, a Samaritan, or a Muscovite, indeed, even a Turk, as long as he could help us in our time of need and would maintain our privileges, rights, and freedoms of religion then we must accept his help as a gift from God. To do otherwise would be to act rebelliously and defiantly against God. End quote. So, as terrible as it sounds today, the phrase liefer Turks than Paps, better Turkish than Papist, certainly tells us a lot about some of the perspectives that were commonly held in this nascent Dutch nation. The Catholic Church meant oppression, and although it was somewhat facetious, to say that they would rather be under the dominion of one of Christianity's longest-held enemies is quite the rebuke. When the Dutch rebel armies took the town of Slaus in Flanders from the Spanish in 1604, over a thousand Spanish galley slaves had been left behind, most of whom were Turkish Muslims. Most of these so-called Flemish Turks were to be sent back to the Ottoman Empire as a gesture of goodwill to the Ottoman Sultan by Maurits, Prince of Orange, William the Silent's son and successor, in his attempt to encourage more Ottoman support against Spain. Unfortunately for these people, whilst on their way back towards Turkey, they were captured in Marseille, re-enslaved, and sold as oarsmen to Florentine and Maltese ships. Around 50 of them, though, were to be transported by a Dutch ship to North Africa to be exchanged for Dutch people who had been sold into slavery there. At this point, we can't leave out perhaps the most striking tale of a person from the Low Countries who was forced into slavery in North Africa, whose life also encapsulates the religious turbulence of the times. A guy from Harlem called Jan Janszoon van Harlem. Jan was born in the first decade of the struggle against Spain in 1575. Little is known about his early life, but in 1600 he became a privateer, working for the fledgling Dutch state in the war, by attacking Spanish fleets, stealing the goods that they had stolen from the Americas, and trying to cripple their trade. Instead, he basically ignored his orders, 
went to North Africa and set up shop operating a pirating business out of the ports along the Barbary coast. He just became a pirate, attacking whatever ships he chose. If it was a Spanish ship, he would fly the Prince of Orange's colours, the Dutch flag, and any other ship, he would hoist the Islamic crescent of the Ottoman Empire. Cheeky. In 1618, Jan Janszoon van Haarlem was captured by Barbary pirates and taken to a port town called Saleh. During this captivity, he converted to Islam. It is unknown whether this was forced, but it is notable that he never sought to amend this and re-Christianize. He became known as Murad Reis, fell in with another powerful pirate called Suleiman Reis, who, it has been suggested, might also have been Dutch. Suleiman Reis died shortly after, and Murad quickly rose to prominence. Not long after he had arrived as a prisoner, Saleh organized and proclaimed itself to be an independent republic. Our Dutch-Muslim pirate Jan Janszoon van Haarlem was elected as the new state's first president and admiral, and then somehow got the sultan to sign off on it all. He then married a local woman, despite still having a wife and family back in Harlem. Murad still occasionally went off pirating, and in 1622 he found himself docking his ship flying the Ottoman flag in Feira, Zeeland. He could not be denied entry because of treaties that had been signed between the Ottomans and the Dutch Republic. His wife and kids were brought to him to plead with him to return, but he ignored them and sailed away. The rest of his life is crazy, but we've already gone so long, we cannot talk about it. But just let me say that he raided England, Ireland, Iceland, and the Mediterranean before being captured by the Knights of Malta and escaping to Morocco, where he was somehow made a governor. Murad's story is an example of how one individual's life could be radically altered when it got caught up in the tumultuous conflicts and connections between the major religions and civilizations of Europe and Asia in the 16th and 17th centuries. These connections between the Islamic world and the Dutch Republic would only multiply during the colonial era, when the Dutch East India Company was setting up trading posts throughout Asia, they would often be doing so in places which were controlled by Muslim rulers and with largely Muslim populations. When negotiating trade deals in these areas, they were conscious of the fact that religious conflict could easily disrupt the flow of goods and money. As such, they would agree to not attempt to convert people to Christianity, Perhaps the most notorious and bloodthirsty Governor-General of the Dutch East Indies, Jan Pieterzoon Kuhn, who would oversee the mass murder of populations in the East Indies to ensure trade monopolies, wrote about this on January 1st, 1614. Quote, In the Moluccas, religion should by all means be left alone. We must maintain our right to export cloves, by force even. But in respect of other matters, we should turn a blind eye. End quote. This decision to not spread Christianity in order to promote trade relations is also how the Dutch East India Company was able to become the only European power permitted to trade with the fiercely anti-Christian Japanese shogunate from 1641 until 1854. The Dutch would retain control of the East Indies until the 20th century. In fact, it is estimated that when the Second World War broke out, Roughly 45 million of the 70 million inhabitants of the Kingdom of the Netherlands were in fact Muslim. 
After fighting for and winning their independence from the Netherlands from 1945 to 1949, the Republic of Indonesia became the second largest Muslim-majority country on the planet. During the economic recovery in Europe after the Second World War, many people from Turkey and Morocco emigrated to the Low Countries in the 1960s and 1970s. They were needed to work in factories and other labour-intensive jobs which there simply weren't enough willing people in the low countries to do. Many of these so-called guest workers remained in the low countries after the official policy to bring them in ended following the oil crisis in 1973. Due to family reunification laws, however, many of the people in the low countries were able to also bring their families. Due to this, today the Netherlands has roughly 420,000 people of Moroccan heritage, and roughly 400,000 people of Turkish heritage. In Belgium, it is estimated that there are around the same number of people of Turkish and Moroccan descent. However, due to the fact that Belgium does not keep statistics on ethnicity, this number is impossible to verify. But what does this mean for religion in the Low Countries? Well, many of the migrants who came from Turkey and Morocco were Muslim, and many of their descendants continue to follow that tradition. As such, around 5% of the population of the Netherlands and Belgium today identifies as Muslim. At the same time as this community has been growing, the sections of the population who would formerly have identified as Christian, whether Catholic or whatever form of Protestant, no longer do. Many people today would likely label the Low Countries as having secular societies. However, it is clear that there is as much an Islamic identity to its ever-diverse population as any other. And just as we have seen throughout this episode with all religious developments, this rapid growth of Islam in the low countries has also stirred a backlash from some sections of society, as can be seen by the rise of right-wing politicians such as Gert Wilders and Philip de Winter. But negative reactions to the growth of Islam over the past few decades rely on the kind of mythologization that we mentioned at the start of this episode using simplistic religious definitions of low country identity and the idea of an eternal conflict between contesting worldviews. We hope that in this episode you have seen how actually the story of religion in the low countries is far more layered, far more complex, constantly changing and yeah, way more interesting than simply saying that the Netherlands is a Calvinist country and Belgium is a Catholic one. The low countries are all of those things and more. And before we sign off for this episode, it is worth pointing out that although many people today identify as having no religion, the thirst for spiritual fulfillment has not necessarily abated. In fact, an argument could be made that we've gone full circle and ancient pagan rites are coming back into fashion, just as the pagan ancestors in these lands worshipped plants and rocks, spoke of deities and energy, and waved burning sticks and bundles of sage around to ward off evil spirits, so too will you find hordes of Dutch and Belgian tourists today flocking around the world to places like Guatemala, India and Ibiza, putting gemstones on altars, singing to the spirit of cacao, undertaking ayahuasca ceremonies and diving into icy cold waters in just the latest evolution of the search for spiritual enlightenment, which seems to be part of the human condition. Thank you. 
you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture, visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.